I know some of you were expecting that um, since today is Easter Sunday, that we might take a different trajectory with our message this morning. But those of you who know me know better. <laughs> um, but you know, today is Easter Sunday. And uh, some Christians prefer to call it Resurrection Sunday. But what we call it is, I don't think, really all that important. Today we celebrate Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish carpenter's son, who was at the same time the one and only Son of God. We celebrate his life of perfect obedience to God's commands, his powerful teaching, and the miracles which proved his divine nature. We celebrate his bloody death on a cruel Roman cross, which should have been our death to satisfy the demands of God's justice for sin. We celebrate his burial in a borrowed tomb, the sign of the prophet Jonah for God's... For although he truly died, the grave couldn't hold him. Death couldn't keep him. We celebrate his bodily resurrection on the first day of the week as the fulfillment of Scripture and the sign of God's pleasure with this once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Most of all, we celebrate the redemption which God promised before the foundation of the world, made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and given to us freely by God the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus' name. Today is a day of rejoicing. Today is a day for us to worship our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now since August, we've been going through a series entitled Finding Purpose in the Psalms. And it really is interesting that today we come to the 26th Psalm. This Psalm was written by David nearly a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And no doubt, this Psalm deals with David's experience in coming to worship the Lord in the tabernacle there in Jerusalem. But it really shouldn't come as a surprise to us that, the, that this psalm actually fits the life of Christ even better than it fits the life of David. Uh, that's not to say that Psalm 26 is necessarily a prophecy about the Messiah. But when we consider what it says, I think you'll see that it actually describes Jesus much better than it describes anyone else. And I think it's especially appropriate for us on this Easter Sunday morning. So I'm going to put the words up on the screen from Psalm 26, or you can read them in your Bible there at your seat if you like, but I'd like to invite you to read them out loud with me as we read Psalm 26, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll ask the Lord to bless us as we study it. Uh, and then I'd like to give you a message this morning from this psalm. Psalm 26, verses 1 through 12, it begins with this. Read it with me, will you? Vindicate me, O Lord. For I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes. And I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals. Nor will I go with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers. And will not sit with the wicked. 
I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Maybe. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations I will bless the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord to guide us now as we study his word. Dear Heavenly Father, once again I come to you this morning on behalf not just of myself, but on behalf of each and every person here in this room today. Lord, we are gathered together to worship you. We're gathered to sing praise to you, to, to reflect on the glories of your wonderful grace. But Lord, we need your help. Because as we read the word of Scripture, we, we need our eyes to be opened. Lord, we need your spirit to teach us, to instruct us in the truth, to help us to see it, and Lord, to help us to have hearts that are ready to receive it. And so Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts even now for the impact of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would use me as your instrument. Lord, I don't, I don't want to be in the way of your work. And I don't want to obscure your truth. Lord, help me to simply proclaim the truth and allow your spirit to take it and use it as you will. And let us give you praise and thanks for all that you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are three main themes that we find in this psalm. The themes are this. We find the theme of prayer. We see a claim of integrity. And we see confidence in the Lord. Now, as I said earlier, however much these may be represented in the life of David, I think we can safely say that Jesus is the one whose life was characterized by complete dependence on God through prayer. And it was Jesus who could rightly claim innocence and integrity, especially in contrast to his enemies. And of all men, it was Jesus who could be confident. Not only that God would hear his prayers, but also that he would deliver him from the enemy, the greatest enemy, death. And so this morning, I think it's right that we should make much of Jesus Christ. Make much of his innocence and, and of his example of faith-filled dependence on God the Father. But is there any sense in which you or I might be able to pray the prayer of Psalm 26 ourselves? Is it possible for us to ask the Lord to vindicate us, to defend our innocence, and to uphold us in the presence of our accusers? I think the answer is yes. Although that may not seem obvious to you at the beginning. 
What David does here in the psalm, and I think it's very interesting, right at the beginning of the psalm, is he asks the Lord to judge him. It's translated, vindicate me, O Lord, because he expects to be found innocent. But the word is simply the word to judge. And then again, notice what he says in verse 2, examine me, prove me, try me. These are three different words which intensify the, 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 the meaning as you move from one word to the next. Examine me. What he's saying here is, Yahweh, inspect me to see my true quality. Then he says, prove me. In other words, put me to the test. And finally, he says, try me. And that, that has the idea, actually, of smelting metal. Smelt my heart and my mind to remove any impurity and to prove my worth. This is the most thorough examination. How much courage must it take to ask the Lord to look so closely into one's heart and one's thoughts? Would any of us dare today to pray, Lord, vindicate me. Lord, judge me. Lord, examine me. Prove me. Put me to the test. Smelt my heart and my mind. Reduce them to their essential elements to see if there's any impurity and remove it. And yet that is exactly what David does here. And I think it's because of this that this psalm has been received in many different ways. Some scholars have suggested that Psalm 26 is very unchristian. Okay. That this psalm is, is, is outside the bounds of what a good Christian could pray. Some have suggested that Jesus actually condemned this kind of thinking in Luke 5 when he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So some have said, well, a psalm like this is nothing more than a, this is nothing more than the testimony of the Pharisees. The, the person who's self-righteous, who doesn't feel a need for God, who can say, God, vindicate me. God, I'm righteous. Just come and see, and you'll see righteousness. But I don't think that's really what's going on here. And I think if we look more closely at them, we'll see that Psalm 26 is not, is not self-righteous boasting. It's something far more than that. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, he says. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. I've already pointed out that this request for vindication goes beyond just asking God to prove him right. He's not just saying, God, prove me right. He says, smelt. He used that word, try me there in, in, in verse 2. And it's the idea of smelting metal. And the reason that you do that is so that the impurities can rise to the surface and can be removed. So it is an act of purification. It's not just... Uh, it's not just exposing that it's pure. 
It's also an act of purifying. So he's not just saying, prove that I'm good. But he also makes a claim of integrity here. Verse 1, I have walked in my integrity. The word integrity here has the idea of wholeness or sincerity. He's saying here that his devotion to the Lord is sincere. Lord, vindicate me because I have truly and sincerely devoted myself to you. That's really what he's saying in verse 1. Now, if integrity meant sinlessness, then the only person who could claim integrity would be the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Because we all admit and we all understand he's the only one who can say, I am sinless, I am innocent in the sense of being completely pure and and free from sin. So when he says here that he is integrity, he's not saying that he's sinless. What he's saying is that he has truly loved the Lord and he has truly desired to worship him. He has trusted in the Lord, he says. So he's not trusting in himself. He's trusting in God. And because of that, he knows that his faith is not misplaced. See, he's trusting in the Lord, and so he says, I shall not slip. I won't waver or be unsteady. And that's consistent with his claim of integrity, of sincerity. See, he's not going back and forth between faith and unbelief. He's not wavering. One day I believe this, next day I'm not so sure. He says, listen, Lord, I know who you are, and I believe in you. I trust in you. And so I am confident that I won't slip. I'm confident that I won't be unsteady. I don't think there's any hypocrisy in this. It might be different if we were saying something like this to other people. It might be different if the, if the psalmist were getting in front of the whole congregation and saying, I am uh, innocent and I am, have integrity and I love the Lord and I serve the Lord faithfully and I am consistent. That might be boasting and bragging. It might be boasting and bragging for me to get up here and try to say that to you. But notice who he's speaking to here. Vindicate me, O Lord. Who is he praying to? The God. He's praying to God. He's praying to Yahweh, the Lord. And so when he does, when he prays to the all-knowing, all-wise God of heaven, don't you think that God would know if he were being insincere? You see, when we pray to God, there's no reason for pretense. There's no reason to put on a show because he knows exactly what we are and who we are. And so the psalmist here, when he prays, Lord, vindicate me, Lord, test me, prove that I truly am genuine because I love you. God knows it. I can't help but think, uh, as I read Psalm 26, all week long I've been thinking about Peter when Jesus confronts him at the end of the book of John. Do you remember that circumstance? Jesus had been uh, on trial, you know, and and Peter was watching, and and Peter had, you know, was confronting people, said, hey, don't you, aren't you one of his? And Peter said, no, no, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And three times Peter denied him, right? And Peter, Peter was heartbroken. 
Because he realized that even though he had said he was going to be faithful, he wasn't. And no matter how much he wanted to do the right thing, Peter, Peter couldn't. He failed. And it grieved him. And at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus is once again with the disciples after the resurrection. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? What kind of question is that? What kind of question is it when the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows everything, okay? He knows what is in our hearts. He knows what is in our minds. He knows what we feel. He knows what we think. What kind of question is it when he asks us about what's in our heart? Peter, what is in your heart toward me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus says, Peter, then go feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? The third time. And, and I don't know what was going through Peter's mind, but, but I get the sense as I read that passage that it broke him. The third time. It was too much for him. Because he says, Lord, you know all things. Why do you keep asking me, Lord? You know that I love you, but you know that I fail. You know that I love you, but you know that I can't do this. You know exactly who I am. That's the kind of sense I get in this psalm. Lord, you know my heart. You know that I'm trusting in you. You know that I'm devoted to you, that I'm sincere. I want to worship you. You know who I am, what my heart is. And as, as David prays here, he prays to God knowing exactly who he is, but he also understands that he's not putting on a front here. So what he says is absolutely sincere. Lord, vindicate me. Prove that I am truly devoted to you. That is what my heart desire is. Well, then let's move on. Verse 3, he says this, For your loving kindness is before my eyes. And I have walked in your truth. To understand what he's saying here is that his life has demonstrated the integrity and innocence that he's claiming here. He says, I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Now, I've already pointed out here that his request for vindication goes beyond just asking God to prove him right. He wants to be pure. He wants to, to be obedient. He wants to follow the Lord. So what does one do? How, does, how do you do that? Well, that's what he's talking about in verses 3 through 5. He says, your loving kindness is before my eyes. God's loving kindness. That's the focus of his eyes. That's what's in front of him. What does that mean? Well, I said this before numerous times, and we'll probably say it many, many times before we're done with the book of Psalms. The word loving kindness here is the word chesed. And it's a word that means the mercy of the Lord, his love, his faithfulness to keep his covenant. All of these ideas are wrapped up in that term. Whenever this word is used in the Old Testament, it brings to mind all of the law, all of the promises, all of the covenant that God made with Israel that he gave them through Moses. This law 
It governed every aspect of their lives. Right? It was their civil law. But it also was their guide for worship. And it was their personal moral standard. And it contained promises of blessing and of reward for obedience. But it also contained curses and judgment for sin. What David is referring to here, the law. He says, your loving kindness, your chesed, your covenant love. God, what you have promised to do, the covenant you've made with us, that's what I keep before my eyes. Your truth. Now here in verse 3 is the second time that he's used the word walk in this psalm. I have walked in your truth. He said it also in verse 1. And he uses it one more time in verse 11 when he says, As for me, I will walk in my integrity. This word suggests that he's not just talking about what he believes. He's talking about the way that he lives. And this is important because genuine faith is faith that works. It's active. It's alive. It's far more than just talk. He's observed God's law. He's watched God's faithful covenant love. And he is determined to walk in the truth. What does walking in the truth look like? That's what he describes there in verses 4 and 5. He avoids false worshipers. He calls them idolatrous mortals. Hypocrites. Evildoers. The wicked. It kind of reminds me of Psalm 1. You know? And all the way back to August. The, the man who is blessed, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the, in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that he avoids sinners, looks down his nose at everybody that's not as pure and perfect as he is. I was thinking about this. He says he, he will not go with hypocrites. I guess that means we can't come to church, right? Because everybody knows, you know, you want to find hypocrites, just go to the church. Or you can go outside the church. It's fine either way. You'll find them anywhere you go. But the truth is, you know, that, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I don't ever go around hypocrites. I don't, I don't ever, you know, accidentally run into sinners. I better make sure that I don't accidentally run into a sinner somewhere. Hey, well, don't look in the mirror in the morning. Right? You have a problem here. No, he's talking here about his, he's talking here about joining them, participating with them in their ungodliness and in their false worship. He says, listen, Lord, I am faithful to worship you and obey you. So I don't go with sinners when they do sin. He's not saying I don't have friends who are sinners. We all have friends who are sinners. He's just saying, I don't ever go, you know, I don't ever hang out with anybody who's not from the church. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, Lord, I am careful to live in obedience, and I do not participate with those who turn their back on you and your word. He's not going to participate in their ungodliness. This is what it looks like to walk in the truth. See? He separates himself from those who are walking in an ungodly way. He refuses to take part in their sin. 
But then there's, a, there's another side of it. There's, a, there's the other side of the coin, you know. Because not only does he avoid those who walk in ungodliness, but he seeks out those who also, like him, want to worship the Lord. Look at verse 6. He says, I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Again, notice that he emphasizes his integrity here. The worshipers of Yahweh must wash their hands in innocence. This reminds me, by the way, of Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He says, if I come to worship the Lord... I'm going to wash my hands. But I'm not just doing this as a religious ritual. I'm not just coming and washing my hands because it's what we do. I'm coming and washing my hands because my pure and clean hands reflect the heart that is clean. All right? It, again, this, this, and as I think about this this week, thinking about Jesus and his his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion, and you think of another instance where someone washed their hands, right? Anybody think what his name was? Someone that washed their hands very symbolically? Pilate, right? Pontius Pilate. He's, the crowd cries out, crucify him. And he has him bring him a basin of water and he washes his hands in the water and he says... I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. How ridiculous. How ridiculous to think that washing your hands in a bowl of water is enough to remove the stain of your sin. You can't do it. Washing yourself in water won't remove your sins. And so what David says here is, I wash my hands in innocence. Oh, I wash my hands. I'll, per, I'll take part in the worship of the Lord and the ritual that's involved, but my clean hands will reflect my pure heart. There's a consistency there. Remember, this is his integrity. Okay. He worships Yahweh. With songs of praise and thanksgiving. There in verse 7. Proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell all your wondrous works. This is, this is true worship. This is what true worship looks like. It's when men and women come together in one assembly with clean hands and with pure hearts. To give thanks to the Lord for his faithfulness and for his grace. To recite his wondrous works. Okay. What are his wondrous works? Well, these are, by the way, that, that word wondrous, it has the idea of being difficult to comprehend. His works which are difficult to comprehend. Difficult to explain. Well, I tell you, if there's one thing that's almost impossible for us to understand, 
It's that a God who is perfect and holy would love vile and corrupt sinners enough to send his one and only son to die in our place and trade his sin for our righteousness. Paul describes it this way in Romans 5. When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely would a righteous man, I'm sorry, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, whenever men and women gather to worship the Lord, his saving grace will be proclaimed. This is what we sing about here. <laughs> this is what we talk about here. This is what we do when we gather together. We sing and we talk and we proclaim and we preach one thing. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's it. We sing about the wonderful grace of Jesus. And that's what David is doing here. What a privilege it is. What a privilege it is for us to enter into the presence of God in the midst of the congregation of his people and sing praise to his holy name. Now I have no doubt that not all who claim to worship God truly know him or truly follow him. I'm sure there are many who call themselves Christians and are not what they appear. They do not wash their hands in innocence. But someday, God will make a distinction. You see, we have this promise in Scripture as well, that there will come a day when God will separate the true followers from all the rest. And I think that's the day that David is looking forward to here. In verses 9 and 10, look at what he says there. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. To gather his soul means to bring him down to death. And the psalmist knows that, just like all men, someday he's going to die. But he's concerned that God will not lump him in with the wicked as if he were one of them. Listen, these men are bloodthirsty. Their hands are not clean by any means. He says they're filled with violence. They're plotting evil and they're paying bribes. There's no sincerity whatsoever in, the claims of the in their claims that they follow God. There's no sincerity whatsoever in their claims to worship the Lord. And someday that will become very clear. Someday men of integrity will be gathered apart from men who are characterized by wickedness and deceit. And even as the psalmist looks forward to that day, he goes on record now. In this psalm, in these verses, declaring that he wants nothing to do with those men and their sinful, evil thing and their evil deeds. He opposes them and their wickedness, their violence, and their treachery. And so he comes to the end of the psalm and he once again appeals 
to the Lord on the basis of his integrity and the Lord's mercy. In verse 11, but as for me, here's the contrast. These men are wicked and violent and ungodly, but as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. Here in these last two verses, he, re he returns to the themes that he began with at the beginning of the psalm. A request for God's intervention. To prove his sincerity and his upright. Joined with the confidence in the Lord to keep him from falling. And a desire to worship Yahweh with all of his people. As I said at the beginning, I think that I think this psalm speaks most closely to the life and testimony of Jesus Christ. Surely he can lay claim to innocence and integrity before the Lord. If there was anyone who could pray to the Father and ask for vindication, it was the sinless Lamb of God who was unjustly slain by bloodthirsty and hypocritical men. And it was Jesus Christ who while he was hanging on the cross, bleeding and dying, cried out to heaven and he committed his soul into the hands of his heavenly father in whom he trusted completely and perfectly. And so Jesus clearly is our greatest example when it comes to the truths and the application of Psalm 26. But there's something else here that I want to point out to you. This is what I've been really, really wrestling with all week long as I've looked at Psalm 26. Because I believe that every person who has been born again by faith alone, in Christ alone, can and ought to pray this same prayer to God. Now you might think to yourself, how can anyone possibly pray to God and claim to have walked in integrity? Isn't such a prayer by default hypocritical? I think you know what I'm going to say. No. But how is that possible? That's really what makes the gospel so wonderful. As I've reflected on this psalm, especially in light of the sacrifice of Christ and his death, his burial, and ultimately his resurrection, I'm compelled to come back to the gospel. Because it's the gospel that makes Psalm 26 possible. It's also what makes it so difficult to comprehend, even though it's really quite simple. Paul says it very succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ became sin for you so that you could become God's righteousness. He suffered under the curse of the Almighty Judge, condemned for sin, so that you could live under the blessed hand of your Heavenly Father, declared innocent of all offense. If you like the psalmist, have trusted in the Lord, then you can pray for God to vindicate you, 
to prove your integrity and innocence because you are perfectly righteous before the Lord. Maybe you don't feel that way this morning. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God in him. That's real. That's reality. That's not imaginary. That's not made up. That's scripture and it's true. You may not feel it, but to be quite honest and blunt, I don't really care how you feel about it this morning. It's true. And we need to believe it. Now, I would like for us to consider three realities that ought to transform us as we think about it. Three transforming truths. If you, like me, have chosen to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have depended on Him for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, and for the hope of eternal life, then there are three truths that are evident in this psalm that you and I need to believe, we need to embrace, we need to cling to with every fiber of our being, especially when we don't feel like it. Because this is truth. The first one is this. Your faith is real. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, your faith is real. This was David's bedrock. And we can see it like a scarlet thread woven through Psalm 26 from beginning to end. He declares his faith there in verse 1. I have trusted in the Lord, he says. He describes it in verse 3. Your loving kindness is before my eyes. Lord, I, I focus on your faithfulness, your loving kindness, your truth. He pleads it in verse 11, redeem me and be merciful to me. David, David believed, he trusted in the Lord. You see, for David and for all true Christians, faith is not make-believe. Faith is not an airy or unreal thing. It is substantial. It is the proof of things which we cannot see with our eyes. It's the foundation. Not just the foundation of our hope, it's the foundation of our entire life. I said this last week, that, that, that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we give up everything. And if you could find out someday that the Bible was false and Jesus Christ didn't really die for your sins, and it wouldn't really have that big of an impact on you, and I don't know what you have, but I don't think it sounds like faith in Christ. Because when we trust in Him, everything, our whole life, rests on Him. This is faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've trusted Him, your faith is real. It's a foundation. It's solid. If you've turned to the Lord in repentance and faith, then you can stand with confidence knowing that God will not let you down. Because he knew this, David could say, I shall not slip. My foot stands in an even place. 
In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. So there's confidence because your faith is real. The second thing that you need to understand, the second truth we need to take hold of this morning is this. Your standing in Christ is real. Your standing in Christ is real. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you have been declared righteous by God. David knew what that meant. I know David knew what that meant because in Romans 4 we read that David spoke of the blessedness of one to whom God does not credit sin. David understood the blessing that it was when God looks at a sinner and a guilty person and says, you know what, I'm not going to lay that sin to your charge. Instead, I'm going to put my righteousness in its place. David experienced that. He knew it. And so he's able to pray, Lord, vindicate me. I'll wash my hands in innocence. I will walk in my integrity. Was this because David was such a great man of obedience? Because David never failed? Because David never did anything wrong? Of course not. Even as a man of faith, David was imperfect at best. And he was downright wicked at his worst. And yet he understood his position before the Lord. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your substitute then Yahweh himself has declared you to be perfectly righteous and innocent. He has declared that you have been obedient. He has declared that you are not guilty of any wrongdoing. The perfect obedience of his son has been credited to your account. And all of your iniquity has been transferred to his account. Nobody said an amen. I was just wondering if anyone was going to. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not asking for one. What a truth this is. What a glorious and astonishing thing that God would take our sin away from us and give it to his son and would then take his righteousness and apply it to us. And you know what? All too often we as Christians live as if that were not so. We beat ourselves up endlessly for our failures. I know I'm not the only one, so I can say this confidently. We beat ourselves up over and over and over and over every time we fail. We refuse to believe that God can and does love us as generously as his word says. Christian, this morning, believe it. God loves you. He loves you with so much abundance. I can't put a number on it. I can't, put a, I can't even describe it with words. The love that God has for you. Believe it. Revel in it. Proclaim his wondrous works with a voice of thanksgiving and bless his name in the congregation. The third transforming truth that, we want, that I want to just take away from it this morning is this. Just like the psalmist, just like Jesus himself, your prayer is real 
and effective. This is what drives the psalmist to pray. His absolute confidence. See, when David prays here, he knows that God, who is holy and sovereign, who rules over all of creation, will hear him in spite of his weaknesses, in spite of his insignificance. You say, well, I'm just one person spinning around on a planet with seven billion other people. Certainly, my prayers can't be that important. Certainly, God must be busy sometimes and distracted. You know? I, I dare not pray when, when, when they're praying because if I do that, he might not hear me because, you know, I, I certainly... Why would he listen to my voice? There's much more important people out there. That's how we think sometimes. David didn't believe that. He believed that in spite of all of those things, God would hear and answer his prayers. And you know that's taught to us in the New Testament as well. That if your heavenly father... If he has given you the righteousness of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and all of the great and precious promises that are in his word, won't he also grant you what you ask according to his will? This is what Jesus taught his disciples. That's what David practices here in Psalm 26, and it's what you and I need to believe and do today. Yesterday I saw a quotation from Robbie Zacharias that I thought was appropriate. He said this, churches are packed on Christmas and Easter. If people really believed those two dogmas, life would be different for them. This is all that I'm asking you to do today as we consider what David wrote in Psalm 26 and these three transforming truths, it's this, believe it. Believe what the scripture says. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he will forgive your sins. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You will be the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That's what you will be. And then let me say this, Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then you are the righteousness of God today. Right now, that's what you are. That's what God has declared you to be. And I, for one, will not say otherwise. Because I'm not going to disagree with what God says. God has called you holy and righteous. A saint. That's what you are. You say, well, I don't feel like it. Well, a lot of times I don't feel like it either. That isn't about our feelings. It's about truth. So believe it. Believe it. Believe that when you cry out to him, he hears. And he says, hey, I know that one. I know that one. I know that voice. That child belongs to me. And like a good, loving father, he bends down to listen calls us close. Oh, my child, tell me what you want. I love you. 
And I want to give you what you need and what you desire. So will you believe the truth and trust on him this morning? Let's close with prayer.